Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Washington, D.C., and in particular in a legendary Washington hotel, the Hay Adams, with the most breathtaking views of the White House and, of course, uh, Lafayette Square, the park, St. John's Church. And most people don't realize the Hay Adams is named after its distinguished residents, John Hay and Henry Adams. Of course, the uh, descendant of uh, Presidents John Adams and John Quincy Adams. My next guest, she's the executive editor of a magazine I used to write for right here in Washington, The Washingtonian. Sherry Delfonce, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I mean, so you've seen all the changes in this town. Uh, in 32 years, yes. I must tell you that 32 years ago, you know where I hung out? Joan Mose. Mm-hmm. Joan Mose was the hangout for the White House Press Corps. It was the hangout for the journalists. It was the hangout for jazz bands that would come there on Friday and Saturday nights, and then it closed. Oh, I was so taken. I was, mm-hmm. I was so disturbed when that happened. But this has become, but in those days, I think you'll admit, 32 years ago, Washington was not a restaurant town. Uh, no, not at all. We're talking steak and potatoes, mm-hmm. right? And yes. now? And now, well, steakhouses are still popular, of but uh, no, the restaurant scene, in fact, anytime we do a restaurant cover, anytime we do any restaurant coverage, that is by far what people want to read about online. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. I think Bon Appetit, I'm now, I think two years ago, called us like the best restaurant city in America. I mean, there there are a couple places I hang out when I come to Washington now. Mm-hmm. There's Rosica. I just like the Indian food there. Bourbon steak, believe it or not, at the Four Seasons. Their truffle fries are not mm-hmm. bad. Yes, they are addictive. Not <laughs> bad. And a few others. Where are some of your favorite places? 
Well, in terms of things to do, uh, or do you mean places to eat? We can start with restaurants, sure. I love all of Jose Andres' restaurants. Um, My favorite is Oyamel, which is a small plate Mexican uh, type, but Zayatina, oh gosh, he's got a whole bunch of them, and Haleo, I guess those would be my favorites. But now for things to do, I mean, I never run out of things to do here in D.C. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many museums that people don't even know about. There are even a couple of monuments that people don't even know about. True. Right? Like the Einstein Monument. Exactly. Exactly. What are some of your places? I mean, somebody's visiting town Mm -hmm. and they go, hey, D'Alphonse, where are we going? Where are you going to take them? And, well, it depends, I guess, on if they've been here before. If they've never been here before, the the one thing I make sure to do with everyone is take them on a nighttime tour of the monuments. Just load them in the car and I drive them around. And even if I have to, like, just you know, wait in the car and let them walk around because that is the absolute best time to see the monuments. And they're here. and they're accessible. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you can make one, you know, big sort Circuit. of loop around the yeah. mall and and uh, you know, if you don't have a host to do that, a cab driver will do it. There are tours, you know, tours you can see. Or Cheryl will do it. You yeah. can I'm sorry? Or you'll do it. Uh yeah. Well, uh there's uh you can even do, I think you can bike it at night. You, there are a lot of nighttime tour operators if there's like a full moon, you have a few more choices. Okay, that's nighttime. What about mm-hmm. daytime? You know, one of the places I've been bringing people, most of my family at this point has visited me a lot. So you're um, sick of them already. That's well, it. no, but they've seen ev- they've seen pretty much everything there is to see in Washington. So one of the things I've been doing of late um, is I take them to one of my favorite places now is Lincoln's Cottage. It's very nobody knows. Uh, that would include ve- me. I don't know. Yes. Tell me. Okay, so Lincoln's Cottage is was basically his Camp David. And it's over in a part of the city that's totally off the beaten track. And during the Civil War, that's where he found some solace and peace and quiet. Because the White House was very different in those days. You could just walk in walk in, and sit and wait to plead your case about whatever. And so many people were coming. He just decided, you know, they offered him this this place. It's, it's on the grounds of the um, Soldiers and Airmen Retirement Home, something like that. And so there was a house there and they offered it to him and he they would go live there in the summer because it was cooler, it was up a little higher. And that's where he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. In that house. In that house. So if you go visit now, it, it was, it laid, you know, board, not boarded up, but it was, you know, nobody visited for years and years and years. And then maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they opened it back up. They had renovated it. Now, it's not furnished and decorated the way he had it because they don't have that stuff anymore. But they, it's an excellent, excellent tour. And um, it really gives you some insight into, like, the, if I mean, I'm a huge fan of Lincoln. I was actually born on Lincoln's birthday. Not the year. And um, <laughs> and I uh, I just, I it's just a really good snippet of his life. And, you know, he used to. Have you been to his library in Springfield, Illinois? I have not. You should. Okay, next on my edge list. I'm not going to tell you what to do there, mm-hmm. but I will tell you to be on the lookout for one thing when you walk in. Mm-hmm. A Lincoln penny. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. And when you get to it, you'll know what I mean. Okay. You know what else they have there? The stovetop hat that he wore. Really? Yes. Okay. <coughs> Absolutely amazing. Okay. All right, so that's one Lincoln's house. Mm-hmm. What else? Uh, well, the if you if you're coming um, and you've even if you've not been here or been here before, there there are a bunch of things that are new. Now you already talked about the African American History. I talk about Museum. it every time I'm in Washington. That yeah. definitely try to get a ticket to that before you come. The other big thing that has opened is the wharf, and this is like the largest development 
Washington has had in a long time. And it's it's just a, it's it's really cool to me that Washington is finally using more of its waterfront. Because yeah, you know, I couldn't understand this for so many years. Mm-hmm. I'd be flying up on either the, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the American or the, or the Delta shuttle mm-hmm. or flying down, I should say. And, you know, you come in over the Potomac and you look on both sides of the plane. It's just nothing's developed. Mm-hmm. So now here's this wharf development. A lot of it's still to be open, but there's a concert hall there, the Anthem, which is getting a lot of great shows like Bob Dylan was just there. Are we talk about National Harbor. No, no, no. This is the wharf. This is in Southwest D.C. Okay, different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So National Harbor, that that's worth visiting too, and, and you can actually take a water taxi from one to the other. Oh, that's the. See, you, I'm in on that. You can yeah. take a water taxi from Georgetown or Old Town to the wharf, and you can eat. You basically eat there. Here's a, here's something that you know about. I know that most people don't. Mm-hmm. You go to Georgetown, or you or, or you go down to Wisconsin Avenue, and you head down towards the water, and you see the old canals. Mm-hmm. You know, the old canals that were used to be, mm-hmm. you know, where the barges were pulled by the horses. Yeah. They're still there. Right now they're doing some construction on them, um, but uh, they're going to build like an incredible park because um, a lot of it had, you know, wasn't, it was underutilized. And of course, when you say Washington, D.C., people don't understand that it's so encompassing because there's so many different parts of the district mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, kind of slop over into Maryland or, or, or Virginia. Mm-hmm. There's Alexandria. Oh, one of my favorite uh, day trips. Just I like walking the streets of Alexandria mm-hmm. because there are bookstores there. I mean, it's like, it's like it's walkable. Yeah, and if you come around this time of year, there's a Christmas store there. Of course, every little quaint old of town course. has to have a Christmas store, but this one is haunted apparently. And there's they've got some great old stories about you know things that have gone bump in the night there, so to speak. But um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, just beautiful. They'll 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 decorate lights like crazy and and actually if you're here i think christmas eve they do a water skiing santa show yeah it's it's kind of would it be okay if i miss that one yeah that's fine but it's apparently funny (laughs) but you know you don't just have to go skating in rockefeller center they're skating here yes and the the dwarf development's going to have skating but my favorite place is uh down at the sculpture garden and that is right on the mall and i actually spent part of a new year's eve once there ice skating and it was just magical i mean you're surrounded by you can see the monuments and um just a, a beautiful beautiful setting and yeah so i mean there's a bu- there's a bunch of places to go ice skating. i mean georgetown has it now I, it's amazing how there used to be like one place now there's a bunch and they're pop they're literally popping up mm-hmm. exactly total i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore Whenever I come to Washington, D.C., or even more than that, whenever I bring somebody to Washington, D.C., I drag them, kicking and screaming, but not for long, into the location where my next guest lives and breathes. It's the National Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian, uh, and his name is the chief curator of that incredible institution, Peter Jacob. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. I mean, I remember the first time I saw an IMAX movie, it was there called To Fly. In fact, one of the first, if not the first, IMAX theaters in the United States was at the Air and Space Museum when we opened in 1976, and To Fly was the premier film. 
unreal. I mean, I remember just I could not believe the technology and and how you really felt a part of it. You know, and even even now, I mean, you have how many different exhibits do you have that are that are IMAX now? A lot. Well, we have several films that play during the day, what we call mission films about our subject matter. But then we also uh, uh, play feature films, uh, Hollywood films, you know, the, the latest Star Wars films and other uh, films related to that. We had D-Day recently, uh, which was a, an IMAX 3D film. Now, as a total aviation junkie, I have to ask you this question because obviously you're limited by physical space there and you're the curator. So I suppose the double-edged sword here is you find something you really want. Where do you put it now? Because you've got so much good stuff there already. Well, there's two things that every museum, no matter how large or how small, never has enough of. One of them is money, and the other one is space. <laughs> and you get space by getting money to build more space. And that's exactly what uh, the Smithsonian is, is doing. We're um, uh, embarking on an uh, increased storage capability out at the area where the Udvarhazi Center is uh, near Dulles Airport. And uh, we've just uh, beginning the construction of the first new storage building that will be part of that, uh, that complex of storage buildings that the whole Smithsonian will use, not just air and space. But we're doing that because we're renovating and revitalizing the National Air and Space Museum Mall building, and we need to stay That's the open. one I know the best, yeah. And we are going to stay open to the public during that entire project. So we need to move things out in stages. So that first storage building, we're building a little sooner than we planned. So we can use that as a staging area to uh, not only repair and upgrade the building, but also redo and transform all 23 exhibition galleries in the National Mall building. And those exhibition galleries are staggering because these aren't models. These are the real things. One of the things that makes the Smithsonian special is that you come to see the real thing. And in this wonderfully digital world that we have where we really want our visitors to engage with us, not only in person but online, the, the digital experience actually entices people to come to see the real thing even more. And we have everything that uh, you can imagine, first of almost everything associated with air and space. Of course, the Wright Brothers' first airplane. Spirit of St. Louis. The Spirit of St. Louis, the, the Apollo 11. And that's Command not a model. model. That's the real one. That's one of the things. The Wright Brothers' airplane and the Charles Lindbergh Spirit of St. Louis, because there are numerous reproductions in other museums around the country, uh, people are always sometimes thinking, well, I saw that at another place. <laughs> but you haven't. Uh, you can only see it, the original one at the Air and Space now, Museum. Now, the one thing that I always point out to, to the visitors I bring about the Spirit of St. Louis is, you know, we're used to seeing pilots with big windshields in the cockpit. Tell me about the windshield that wasn't in the spirit of St. Louis. Well, you know, Lindbergh was uh, uh, an airmail pilot in the 20s before he made this uh, his famous flight. And airmail pilots were used to flying in all sorts of weather. And, uh, of course, there wasn't a lot of air traffic over the North Atlantic in 1927. So Lindbergh uh, didn't really feel he needed a forward visibility on the, on the windshield uh, because that was where the large main fuel tank was ahead of the pilot. Uh, now, he had the ability to put it By the way, that outside. plane was nothing but fuel. It was uh, uh, loaded down. A huge fuel tank in the front and fuel tanks in the wings. And one of his challenges during the course of the flight, he was able to turn valves on and off to uh, distribute the fuel draw from the various tanks because he Weight wanted balance. to balance the airplane. Of course. Uh, so that was one of the things among his navigation and many which, other things. Which, by the do. way, in many, many later years, if you take a look at the Concorde, the Concorde was 14 separate fuel tanks. And the, the only the, the biggest job of the flight engineer was to do what Lindbergh had done on the Spirit of St. Louis, always moving the fuel around so fuel the center management. of gravity, right? Yep. Amazing. 
amazing. But he had that little side window. I love that little side window on the Spirit of St. Louis. It was actually a little periscope. There were the, yeah. the side windows, then he had a little periscope that he could move out to see forward if he needed to. But you have to think it's not so unusual because in those days when you flew uh, an airplane, an airmail plane like he did, they were what we call tail draggers where the, uh, the tail right. sat on the ground. So the nose, when you're on the ground, the nose is up high, so the pilot can't see forward anyway. So the pilot has to look out the side anyway. Yeah. So that was natural to him. So it wasn't a big way, deal. One of the tail draggers was a DC-3. Yep. That plane sat on its, on its tail, and those pilots were just hoping they'd get up in the air. Yeah. That's why in those early days, if you see films, you'll see the pilots, when they taxi, they make what are called S-turns, where they're pattering out an S as they taxi. That's because they couldn't see forward with the nose up high. They had to look out the side, kind of like how a bird looks at. You know, a bird can't see forward. A bird looks out of those two sides of his eyes. So uh, that's how early pilots had to fly. So the setup on the, on the Lindbergh airplane, even though it seems very peculiar today, it wasn't all that strange from a pilot from that period. Yeah, but I love pointing out to my friends... Show me the windshield on that plane. They can't. Yeah. It wasn't there. Right. Amazing. Peter, we talked about Spirit of St. Louis. You've got the Apollo. You've got the Mercury, right? You've got all those capsules. Um, to me, I mean, I have a problem picking my favorite because, I mean, I take my friends in there and I show them, you know, the original Eastern Airlines markings on those planes, you know. Or uh, even the, the Northwest 747 you've got there, which is a cutaway, right? What's your favorite? Well, I suppose I would have to say the first airplane, the Wright Brothers airplane from 1903. Wooden. It's wooden fabric. Uh, and while I'm the chief curator these days, my uh, research interest has been the very early history of flight. So I've written a number of books about the Wright Brothers and their airplane. The Montgolfiers, too? Oh, that was ballooning. That was lighter than I know that. that. I know. 100 years earlier. I had to throw that in there, yeah. But we don't have the Montgolfier balloon. There's some pieces of it that exist in, in, uh, in Europe, but uh, we don't have uh, the actual Montgolfier. But we do have the actual Wright Brothers airplane. And one of the reasons why it's so important and perhaps why I think it's the, uh, what I call a signature Smithsonian object, you know, we look, talk about the Star Spangled Banner or the Ruby Slippers or the Hope Diamond. Well, the Wright Brothers airplane is one of those signature Smithsonian objects that everybody comes to Washington to see. And the reason and is— And when they see it, what's their biggest surprise? Well, I think the, what's so important about that airplane is it's not that it was <laughs> the first airplane to fly, which, of course, it was, but every airplane is— embodies the same principles of the right flyer. Every airplane that you see, every airplane you've flown embodies the right flyer. Sometimes I do the a curvature talk. curvature of the wing. Sometimes I would do a talk where I compare, compare the X-15, which was the fastest flying airplane ever, six times the speed of sound with a rocket engine, to the right flyer. And my talk really is... I can even tell you the name of the pilot, White. Well, there were many pilots. Yeah, but the he, was the, he was the one who... Well, of course, there's Chuck Yeager in the X-1. That's another airplane. I know, Glamorous Glennis, I know. But what I like to point out is that the right flyer... Uh, that the X-15 is just a souped-up right flyer. It flies for the same principles as the same right flyer Same principles, does. exactly. And people need to learn that, otherwise they won't appreciate it. Well, the other thing about the right flyer, when you go up close to it as we have it displayed currently, it's this, you know, powerful icon. I sometimes like to say if an inanimate object can have charisma, that's one that does. Now, there are so many planes that I've been fascinated with. Of course, if you go to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, you'll see many of the old Air Force Ones. You'll see Truman's Air Force One and Eisenhower's Air Force One, but you won't find uh, Reagan's Air Force One. That's at the Reagan Library. I actually flew on that plane, uh, and a couple of years ago, I went out to Palmdale and got special permission from their curator to open the exhibit so I could actually go sit in the seat I sat in. That was a weird experience for me. It was, like, amazing. And, that, and you realize, looking at, at, at Reagan's Air Force One, the plane that took Nixon to China, the plane that, that basically brought Reagan all around the world, how small that 707 was, considering that it was representing the United States of America. You know, mm -hmm. amazing. 
But you don't have any Air Force One planes. We don't have any Air Force Ones, but we do have an unusual airplane. We have the Caroline, which was uh, John Kennedy's plane. campaign airplane. So it wasn't Air Force One. It was was the that plane a lock? Was it a Lockheed? A Convair two forty. A Convair propeller. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And he was uh, not president yet, so we don't call it Air Force One. Uh, but uh, it was a very uh, famous airplane because he used it as a campaign aircraft, which uh, was you know really the. And it also of that. could land at Hyannisport. Well, there's that too. It didn't have, you know, it wasn't didn't, didn't need a long runway. Now, if you want to see the SR-71, that's on the deck of the Intrepid in New York. No, we have an SR-71 at our museum at the Udvarhazy Center. Ah, out at Dulles, yeah. And the one that we have is a special one because when it was delivered to us, it flew from California to Washington D.C. And, and set the speed record. Set the speed record of 66 minutes to cross the United States. Think about that. Think about that. And the, at, at what altitude? Well, it's uh, several thousand feet, but uh, the, the actual uh, altitude capability and, and top speed capability are still classified. But it's a Mach 3-plus airplane. Although they did set the record. I know this for a fact. Not just the speed record. They set the altitude record at 86,000 feet. They got that high. Well, that's not the highest flying airplane. The X-15 is the fly- highest flying airplane. Because he was really suborbital, just about. It was at the, right at the top of the atmosphere, 67 miles into the atmosphere. X-15 is still the highest-flying, fastest-flying airplane, six times the speed of sound and right at the top of the atmosphere. Although, going back to the SR-71, the, the Black Widow, that was, was that the Black Widow? Black Bird. Black Bird. Black Widow is the U-2? No. No, Black Widow is the P-61. It's a oh, World the old, War II the old World War, I got, I got it. But the, but the SR-71, 66 minutes to cross. That is unfathomable. It's a good, good clip. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. What I'm about to say is redundant. Washington and history. I mean, it's sort of like it goes hand in hand. There's just so much of it here, but so much of it that people don't know that may be right in front of their face and they don't even see it. You know, there are the iconic monuments and the museums, and we got those, and we'll be talking about that, you know, throughout the show. But to me, there's so much hidden history, and it's all about storytelling as well. And joining me now is uh, the big cheese at the Washington Historical Society. Did you like that, the big cheese? <laughs> the big is that a historical cheese. reference that you can live with? <laughs> Jane Levy, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I mean, it's not just about physical objects, is it? It's, it's also the views. It's also what you get to see. Right. And from where we are sitting right now, you get to see an incredible vista. I'm looking out the window across Lafayette's Park at uh, the White House through the trees. Uh, this is just a spectacular sight where we are. And the last time that I was actually here was the day I got married. In this hotel? No, I didn't get married in the hotel, but we spent our honeymoon first night here at the Hay Adams. I read that police report. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Very D.C. thing to do. But you did it. Yes, we did. So, I mean, there's so much history within... 40 feet of this hotel. Absolutely, yeah. What are the big surprises to you? Because you're always telling people stuff they didn't know. Uh, The big surprises to me about Washington, I guess, are the fact that Washington is a very American city, that people think of it as just the nation's capital. I shouldn't say just. uh, People think of it as the nation's capital, which is very important. But the D.C. that I work on, that I know the best as a historian at the Historical Society, is local Washington. And in fact, the stories of local Washington are the stories of the United States of America. Uh, We're a different place. 
this because we are dominated by Congress to this day. We are a colony, if you will, of the United States of America. We, and I say that because the citizens Washington D.C. is of course Washington yeah. D.C. because the citizens of Washington do not have representatives in in Congress, and therefore Congress tells us what to do to this day. So we are a bit of a colony. Uh, American historians think, well, D.C. is different. It's not like the rest of the country. But really, what's happened in Washington reflects the rest of the country. Just often it happens here uh, more intensely than other places. Do you think that that status will ever change? Oh, I hope so. Yeah. There's a there's a huge push right now, and there have been many of these pushes over the years to make Washington, D.C., wait for it, the 51st state. Well, you know, funny you should mention that, because after the hurricanes devastated places like Puerto Rico, America got a little bit of a wake-up call. Oh, guess what? Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Absolutely. As is Washington, D.C., as is American Samoa, as is Guam. And for me, I, I, it's, it's sort of like the, they're the not-quite-states of America. That's right. And why? You know, the, yeah. the, the question you have to ask is, what's the purpose of not being states? What's the purpose of not having full rights to the American dream, the American way of life? And do you think it might actually happen in, in our lifetime that, that it will become the 51st state? I will tell you something that is not going to help you very much, which is that I'm a historian and I don't like to predict. So uh-huh. I'm not going to predict. I know that a lot of very worthy people are working on that cause right now. Well, as a historian, then you'll appreciate this, that those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> That's very true. I just thought I'd share that with <laughs> That's you. That's It's a truism that we live by, absolutely. It is. It is. So when your friends come to visit you in Washington, what's the biggest surprise that you tell them that they had no clue about historically about Washington? Um, historically, uh, oh boy, I think probably the big surprise to them is that Washington, D.C. was not built on a swamp, thank you very much. People actually believe that, and it is a myth. It's a canard. It's a nasty thing to say. Uh, we don't like it very much. Um, and the thing I point out to them is there are lots of reasons that that myth grew up, but to dispel that myth, you just have to ask yourself, why would George Washington, the father of our country, a very smart dude, choose a swamp for the nation's capital? And he chose this spot. Well, we have that famous artist rendition of him crossing the Delaware. We never see him crossing a swamp, do we? That's right. We don't, because there wasn't a swamp to cross. Thank you. Now, 500,000 people live in D.C. More than. Really? Mm-hmm. And you're still not recognized? No. And I got gotcha. you. It's a tough. It's a tough one. There are lots of historical reasons for that, but um, I, I want to mention a book that has just been published by two very good friends of mine. It's called Chocolate City. It's written by Chris Myers Ash and George Derek Musgrove, very fine historians, and they have made a very sharp argument, which I have to say I agree with. That the reason that Washington D.C has not become a state, is not respected, is pure racism. Washington, D.C., in all of its history, has been a very African-American-dominated place. Um, even before the Civil War, when it, this was a slaveholding city, we had more free blacks here than we had enslaved people. And uh, the white power structure was threatened by that and has always been, to some degree, threatened by the black power and the uh, African-American population here. Well, anytime the power structure is threatened, they're not really, you know, really excited about giving up the vote. That's right. That's That's the problem. That's the problem, yeah. So, but historically, though, there's Washington, D.C. history. There's also African-American history here in Washington, D.C. And one of the great museums you can visit right now, which only opened a year ago, is the African-American Museum, which is part of the Smithsonian. Unbelievable museum. That is a a real jewel in the crown of the National Mall. Um, It's 
a little difficult to get into. Yeah, the waiting lists are unbelievable. Yeah, but but it's worth it's worth the trouble to get. I mean, the tickets are free. You just have to get them online, and it's worth the trouble of booking in in advance. One of the reasons it's so hard to get in is that nobody wants to leave once they're inside. It takes. I mean, I've been twice now, and both times I was there for four hours without even trying hard. And I only left because I couldn't walk anymore. There was so much more to see. Um, as somebody who's had a career, including uh, working as a curator myself, um, I have to say that I find it very intense and very packed as a, a, a visitor experience. Um, and I understand why. It's, and emotional. It, it's, it's extremely emotional as well. So it, it takes a lot out of you. But most museum visitors don't stay for more than two hours. Really? So it really is is a, a fabulous thing and an important but thing, a must thing to say. A must stop. A must stop. Yeah, absolutely. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Regular listeners to the show know that whenever I go to a city, a town, a village, you name it, one of the first places I want to go, if I ever want real information on what's going on in that town, where to go as well as where not to go, no, it's not City Hall, no, it's not the Visitor and Convention Center, no, it's not the Chamber of Commerce, it's the Firehouse. Because those are the men and women who know, because they've been in everybody's hotel, they've been in everybody's restaurant, they've been in everybody's house, they know the city. They know where to go, they know where not to go, and they're also great guys. I know this because regular listeners of the show also know I'm a fireman. I like to think I'm a pretty good guy. So, welcome please, the uh, the fire and EMS chief from Washington, D.C., Gregory Dean. How are you, chief? I'm good, thank you. Did you like that intro? I love that intro. Now, <laughs> now listen, you came here from Seattle. Yes. You, found, you finished in Seattle and said, I'm not done yet, and here you are. It was um, a great opportunity, and so, yes, I'm excited to be here in the, in the district. But fighting fires in Washington, D.C., I mean, you've got so many old buildings, uh, especially in the Georgetown area, all wood frame. I mean, you've got your work cut out for you. It's it's different uh, coming from uh, the row houses and that, coming from the West Coast where a lot of single-family houses and that. Yeah. And then the older buildings don't have the um, fire stops in them, so you so you have that challenge. But we try, to, we, have, we try to have fun with it at the same time. You know, it's interesting. We talked about, and I reported on the story when you had the famous Grenville Fire Tower fire and Grenville Tower fire in London, and everybody talked about the cladding on the outside, the cladding on the outside of the building. That's why so many people died. I went back into that and did some investigation and realized that may have been a contributing factor, but a bigger contributing factor was there were no sprinklers in that building. Correct. And and you know and I know both as firefighters, you have a building that's not sprinkled and you're above the sixth floor. What are your chances? Chances are a lot more difficult because the stairways are crowded trying to get everybody in there. It is, um, sprinklers have come a long way. You've been in this business long enough to know that we thought that um, if we put sprinklers in and smoke detectors, it would take our job away. And yet still, there's still people and people do interesting things. 
Right. And, you know, it's interesting to look at the fire codes in different cities. I go back to the, to the famous MGM fire in Las Vegas, which really was the wake-up call yes. about how fast a fire can spread and how many people can die so fast. There were no sprinklers. There were no sprinklers, and you had that big room that the fire started in, yeah. and it just uh, just swooped right across. We had a fire in Seattle in the 70s um, that did the same thing, and right up the stairwell and lost about 23 people. So for people listening to the show who are travelers, who are going to go to different cities they may not have been in before or may are returning to a city, I mean, I, I always tell them, hey, listen, if you're staying in a hotel, the high floor room with a view is overrated. I'm a big fan of under the sixth floor, not the first floor because you don't want people breaking into your room, but three, four, five, and six, those are my favorite floors. Well, I've learned a different lesson. <laughs> and my lesson is that when I first get to my room, I practice which way do I turn to find the stairwell to be able, regardless of what floor I am, to be able to get out. So I well, kind of remind, a, I kinda remind myself of that all the time. Well, you have to because it would be very embarrassing for you, sir. If I, I probably wouldn't know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you got to know where the exits are. Of course. But the other thing that I, I, I quiz my friends on this all the time and they never get it right. You're asleep in your hotel room. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's dark. The fire alarm goes off. What's the first thing you do? I go to the bathroom, of course. Uh, no. No. <laughs> that first thing you, you do. You roll off that bed to the, the floor. The first thing is you get low. You get and low. You, and you touch the door in the corridor, to going into the corridor to make sure it's that not it's not hot. hot. Yeah. And after that, you uh, you still stay low and you find that stairwell that you remembered when you first came into the hotel. Exactly. Yes. Now, if you do push your, your hand against the door and it's like really hot, you do not open that door. Correct. What you do is you go in the bathroom, get as many towels as you can, and start shoving it under those door jams and, and, and any place that air can get in. And then what I do, now, Chief, you can mm -hmm. laugh at me about this, but what I suggest to people to do is to go into the bathroom and turn on the shower and, and, and have it fill up the tub because the water and the steam will, will, will grab all that particulate, all the particulate mm -hmm. matter that's toxic and give you a better chance. Well, you saw the, the family in uh, the uh, fires out in California where they were in the pool. Yeah. And, that, and that's how they survived is, is being around that. But it, there are a couple things I would suggest you do in between which is one, either use the house phone or the cell phone to call the fire department and tell them what floor you are and where you are so people will know where to come looking for people when you're trapped like that. And, you know, fire departments today have gotten very sophisticated in geo-tracking. They've gotten very sophisticated today in, term in, in getting the floor plans mm -hmm. of every hotel in town and every restaurant in town. You know where to look if somebody tells you where they are. Yes. And floor plans, again, usually, as you know, uh, we stop two floors below, and we take a look at the floor so we know what, what the floor looks like when we go on to the fire floor. What's the biggest mistake people make? Not getting low and, and trying to run through things, trying to take things that are important with them out of the, out of the, out of the place. All those are, are material things. Yeah, anytime you stop, your, your precious seconds are counting. I mean, we talk about evacuation of airplanes. Every airplane is supposed to be evacuated in 90 seconds or less. We've seen evacuations that have gone for 10 minutes because people are leaving with their luggage. They're coming down the emergency slides with their rollerboards. Not good. Not good. I know. It, it, everything that's physically is replaceable. We can't replace you. Exactly. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. As I continually tell all my friends, especially about this city, 
you know, you all know about the Lincoln Memorial and the and the Jefferson and the, and the, and the monument. And I mean, there's just so many, and, you know, the reflecting pool, all those things that people come to see the White House. I got that. And you know about certain museums that I happen to know and love, like the Air and Space Museum and, and the Smithsonian and the National Portrait stuff. All that. But there are so many museums you don't know about. And one of them is the Hillwood Estate Museum and Gardens right here in D.C. And the executive director is Kate Market. How are you? I am great. How are now, you? I will, I will be honest with you. I have not been. I didn't know about it until we researched it. That's why I had to have you on the show, because it's one of those museums, if you don't know about it, you're not going to find it. That's exactly right. So tell me about it. Okay. Well, Hillwood Estate Museum and Gardens was established by Marjorie Merriweather Post. That name I know. She was the only child of C.W. Post who created Post Toasties and Postum and all sorts of cereals, made a big fortune around the turn of the century. I know all about Post Toasties. I grew up with Post Toasties. I'm glad to hear that. Well, Did I'm you drink Postum? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, it's it's an acquired taste, as Thank we you. say. Thank you. That's probably why I didn't drink it. Ovaltine. <laughs> no, it isn't okay. quite as good as Ovaltine. Okay. So in 1955, when she was 68 years old, she decided that she would create this museum that she would leave to the public because she realized that her collection was really worth being preserved as a museum. So Wahillwood is actually 25 acres. It's fabulous gardens. Think about that, folks. 25 <coughs> acres here. Exactly. It's it's actually, in the fall, it's actually a wonderful place to see the leaves turn in Washington because we do have a lot of woodlands. But we also have 13 acres of manicured gardens. So there is a rose garden, a French parterre, a Japanese garden, <coughs> a cutting garden in the summertime. Now it's we're glorious. In, now we're in Washington. Are there cherry blossoms? Well, there are cherry blossoms, but not quite what you have uh, okay, around just, the pool. Just, but we do have we do have lots of beautiful cherries. Okay. Yes. So it's what would you call it? A decorative arts museum? Yes, actually, and that's a that's a good way to describe it. We have um, and gardens. Yes, we have a world class museum that has, for example, two Fabergé eggs and the Imperial Russian eggs. Lots of Tell that to Malcolm to, Forbes. That's right. <laughs> he used to have the biggest collection. Yeah, he did, he but did. he did sell it. Um, but ours are still with us, and we have incredible 18th and 19th century French decorative arts. So it's a very, very beautifully furnished home. People are always uh, quite delighted and surprised at how beautiful it is. Now, when you say it's a beautifully furnished home, is it just the way she left it? Yes, actually. Really? It's almost exactly the way she left it. Although she didn't say that you can't ever move one thing. We do change <laughs> the displays a lot. Right, um, but the actual furniture? And yes. Just the way. It is. And the great thing about Hillwood, a lot of times um, these historic homes, they have fallen into disrepair at one point. But with Hillwood... She died in 1973, and right. it immediately became a museum. So it never really went into any kind of sad state of disrepair. So you're able to maintain it? Oh, absolutely, yes. It's, it is, people are always impressed by how gorgeous it is. Other than the Fabergé eggs and the beautifully manicured gardens, what's the biggest surprise for people when they get there? I think it's really getting to know how Marjorie Post lived it's quite an immersive experience. So when you come in, you feel because like... Because on, on one level, you would assume, well, she's a trust fund baby, right? 
Well, she was um, quite a, she was a good businesswoman. She was a great philanthropist. She was a major collector, and she was really a, a concerned citizen. So she was not, she didn't, you know, act like a trust fund baby. She acted like a, a very responsible um, and generous person. She was resisting against it. Exactly, I yeah. think. Yeah, her father always told her to keep the money moving, to keep it working. <laughs> I know a lot of and people she, say that. And she did. Keep the money moving. <laughs> no, keep the money unfindable. Yeah, That's no, it. no, yeah. that was not really not the I way know, she I operated. Know. I know, I said these days. Yeah. Well, well. Yeah, maybe. well. Is there an admission charge? There is a suggested ad- admission a charge. A donation. Yes, correct. And are you open seven days a week? We're open um Tuesday through Sunday, 10 to 5. See, so that's the only cool Monday. Thing. I, I love a museum like yours that's open on a Sunday because that screams out for a Sunday visit. Absolutely, it really does. It's yeah. a beautiful day to come. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. My next guest is the editor of uh, basically a site that I like to look at because I am a closet foodie. Um, and uh, who better to talk about that than the editor of Eater. or D- Eater DC, excuse me, Warren Rojas. How are you, man? Very well, sir. How are you? I'm good. So, you know, I've been saying this throughout the show. I don't think you're going to disagree with it. Up until about 10 years ago, Washington was, didn't have a real f- food scene. Now it's exploded. Uh, there's certainly been a boom. Uh, I, I, I know some people who would fight you tooth and nail that we didn't have a food scene. Well, you had a food ago. scene. Okay, let's stop. You did have a food scene, but it was nowhere near where it is today. No, there's certainly been, uh, as you said, an explosion. Lots of both homegrown chefs as well as uh, major players from around the country who've come here, who've opened restaurants and who have thrived. Uh, well, well, let's start with the homegrown chefs because in a world in which everybody's a celebrity chef, right? Sure. I mean, I like the guys who don't have their show, their own show yet, if you know what I mean. So They're very few and far between these days. But you know where they are, and you know where they are in Washington. Uh, well, we do have several, although uh, D.C. is also uh, an incredible mixing ground for— we have a significant number of these uh, celebrity chefs from Top Chef, oh, sure. Chopped, all these other shows that didn't win, <laughs> but have come here and have developed and they've done incredible great. followings, and, you know, and, and they've— uh, proliferated and they've created opportunities for other chefs. So that's really, um, you know, they hope open the door. So we don't begrudge them their 15 minutes of, of fame. Of course, uh, nobody's begrudging anybody. But I'm just looking for the little hidden gems. Well, hidden gems, uh, not so hidden anymore because there's now a variety. Like you said, 10 years ago, probably, you know, people might have thought, oh, well, we only go downtown or we only go to this area because it's safe. What's really happened, uh, especially over the past five or six years, is there's new neighborhoods where everyone is heading, but for different reasons. So in Shaw, which is over by the convention center leading up towards uh, U Street, which is a historic area, Ben's Chili Bowl and all that. Well, you know, if you go back to the convention center location, the little alleys around there, they got rows of, of interesting restaurants. Blagden Alley, that's that's part there uh, yeah. contained within Shaw, has the uh, Columbia Room, which was just named the best cocktail bar in America by the uh, Spirits guys down uh, in New Orleans at their annual convention. There is um, a restaurant right next to it, the Dabney, which is run by Jeremiah Langhorn, who is arguably doing incredible things with mid-Atlantic cooking. He's got a wood-fired hearth back there. He's... Pickles everything. You know, he's very hands-on, locally sourced. A hands-on pickler. That's right. Okay, just the best kind. Yeah. 
Uh, and then uh, Caddy Corner to them is a place called Tiger Fork that does Hong Kong-style bubble waffles and dim sum and all kinds of crazy things. So you've got, you've really got uh, your choice depending on what you're in the mood for. And even in Chinatown. Chinatown has uh, changed drastically, I would yeah. say. Uh, you know, we, we lost some uh, historic places like uh, RFD, which used to be a famous uh, beer place, recently shut down. But in exchange, we've gotten... You know, there's Del Campo, which is from uh, Chef Victor Albisu, which is a South American style grill. So not just Peruvian chicken, which everyone in this town <laughs> loves, but crazy big steaks and meaty drinks and all kinds of smoke infused everything. See, my regret is I'll find a restaurant like I did five or six years ago. Like, nah, this is cool. And now I can't get in the joint, you know, like uh, Rasika. Right. Yeah. Well, no, that's uh, well, now there's two of them. So I, maybe I know, you might be I able know. to get into West. I can't End. get into both of them. What <laughs> well, are you talking about? Either or. That's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that remains a perennial. By the way, favorite. if you do get in tandoori salmon, unreal. And of course, the bali chat and that, that the spinach and the, oh the bali chat. Yeah, oh people love God. that. I'm a fan of the, uh, the spicy cauliflower. But, you know, anything that Chef Ikram prepares is pretty much you're guaranteed to enjoy it yeah uh and i will tell you then if you can't get into either of those he has since branched out they now have two indian street food places called bindas one up in cleveland park one that just opened in foggy bottom where you can get that same quality of food scaled down grab and go easy sit down enjoy not not as many lines what about a the, the places that have been well, continuously ignored until recently on the water, like the wharf or or National Harbor. Well, again, I you know the wharf was not that it was ignored; it just fell into disrepair. You know, as a child, I grew up in this area. I have very fond, vivid memories of going to Hogates and getting the rum buns, going to Phillips and just explain marveling. A, explain a rum bun. Rum buns are fabulous, incredibly boozy breakfast creations that they used to serve at Hogates. Yes, it was a chain. Yes, you know. Uh, it's gone away, but in this town, people loved those. They would line up for Can them. Do you still were... get them anywhere else in town? No, they they've gone away. Or you I got mean... a, you got an opportunity here. Well, but people have you know figured out the recipes and put those online so you can recreate them. But it's still not the same as getting yeah. a fresh tin of those melty, sugary uh, rum buns. And you know we we've progressed on. There's there's other pastries. Those, those weren't just rum buns. Those are weapons. They were. They were gut bombs. Yeah, they were gut bombs. They were gut bombs, but they were fabulous. Uh, but like I said, I used to love going down to the waterfront with my parents, and you know, they're. But now well, the wharf's come back. It's it's not just back. It is a completely new neighborhood that they've created. It's a mile long stretch uh, development that's taken several years, several billion dollars to um, to renovate. But yes, so some of the chefs, uh, like I said, local. Uh, personalities who have uh branched out there jamie leeds who started uh hank's oyster bar this is her first waterfront oyster bar so yeah. now people can get oysters like and hank's, see the water i love hank's oyster bar uh chef fabio trabocchi who uh, has opened a number of high-end italian restaurants is now doing spanish seafood because his wife maria is from uh spain so now he's doing paella iberian pork. and you got jose andres all over town I mean. jose andres does not have anything in the wharf but yes he is all over town he is. um mike isabella of graffiato fame uh, and top chef again has a uh, a french theme place uh requin and um yeah and then of course there's the major music venue anthem 930 club put in a six thousand seat space unreal that, you know you and, can... they, and you have concert opportunities also at national harbor uh, National Harbor, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's National Harbor is, I think that is still trying to find its way too because with the casino, oh yeah, that has 
kind of shifted things away from the harbor because now people are going to that one building because it's ah. kind of one-stop shopping. It has the food court with Jose Andres, has a restaurant there. Marcus yeah. Samuelson has a restaurant there. Yeah. So that's the trendier place versus the, the traditional uh, waterfront, which is still very family-friendly. they got a big Ferris wheel, things like that. We're talking to Warren Rojas, the editor of Eater DC. What about Alexandria? Because I think that's a hidden gem all of itself. Uh, Alexandria is is thriving right now as well because so what what's happening with all of these waterfront properties is they're becoming interconnected because so in this case one of the chefs in Alexandria Chef Kahal Armstrong who owns Restaurant Eve a uh, uh, American fine dining um, he just opened a place called Hummingbird in a hotel right there on the water he and his wife are trying to connect that via water taxi to the new restaurant they're going to be opening here on the southwest waterfront Kaliwa so. Other chefs are also looking into this phenomenon where they can create basically a, a boat tour of we'll get you to, you know, the the Nats Park, Alexandria, the uh, National Harbor, wherever you want to go and yeah, have a drink here, grab dinner there, wherever you like. And meanwhile, and you get to go around. I would be remiss if I didn't mention whiskey bars. Uh, whiskey bars are... They're coming up, man. We're in no shortage of whiskey bars. We have no. plenty of good ones. Uh, several have just opened, including one in Alexandria called 1986 Union Street Public House which is 30-odd-year-old neighborhood and place. And they're stocking, what, more than 100 bottles of, uh, of stuff? Yeah, they, they're, their claim to fame is that they've got 100 expressions of whiskey. So you got bourbon, rye, traditional scotch, uh, but they also have rum and, uh, and other drinks. But, yeah, they're, they're trying to really cash in on the people-love-brown-liquor movement. The hotel scene is, is very much evolved. Uh, several new restaurants and, and uh, celebrity chefs have... Uh, decided to go ahead and partner with hotels. One of the, the biggest openings this year has been Arroz in uh, the Marriott Marquis right by the convention center. Mike Isabella put in a Spanish Moorish restaurant that does not paella but bomba rice dishes. And, and by the way, just to put it in perspective, up until recently, you wouldn't want to hang out at the uh, convention center. Well, recently being... In the last three or four years, come on. It, well, but that, like you said before, the, the whole Black Denali, the Shaw District, has really morphed into a very food-friendly, hospitality-friendly area. All right, then what about like over by the National Stadium? National's uh, Navy Yard is a fantastic place. And again, people might not remember that used to be warehouses and yeah, yeah, very, yeah. Seedy, very seedy establishments. Listen, I remember when they were building that stadium going, Really? No, it's. Uh, <coughs> but they did it. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt that the Nationals uh, are, are in contention most every year. Hey, look, it's their pitching, man. It's their pitching. That's right. We go Nats. Uh, but yeah, the, the food scene down there has exploded, um, and it's kind of started uh, a, a few years ago. The Navy Yard, Yards Park, and now you're seeing it spread. We just got District Winery, which is the first functioning winery in D.C. They are, uh, you know. All right, let me ask you this, because, you know, we went through the whole craft beer explosion. Everybody had, you know, 65 different breweries in town. I'm sure that's also happened here in, in, in Virginia, Maryland, in the district. Absolutely. Uh, but now a winery in the district? Uh, well, there's one, and there's another one coming that's uh, going to be happening up in Northeast and up in Ivy City. Where are they growing the grapes? Uh, so District Winery is currently, they have another winery. They started up in New York, so they have several up in New York, um, in Brooklyn, and, uh, and uh, a little further west. So for this one, they're still sourcing it from there, from okay. the, the, the grapes that they brought from now for New York. Their, it's their grapes. It's their grapes. They're, it's their grapes, but uh, they, they've developed or they're developing relationships with wineries in Virginia, wineries in Maryland. So they want that regional yeah, expression, yeah. you know, the terroir of the Mid-Atlantic. Um, so they're starting, I think the first one they'll be releasing next year is a rosé, and that will be made with the, the grapes that they've gathered from here. Now, the other area I want to talk to you about, because 
It's also exploding in cities all over uh, of the country, and that's chocolate. Homemade, not homemade, but I mean locally sourced, artisanal chocolate. Like in Brooklyn, there's the Mass Brothers now. And Brooklyn sure. was never known for chocolate. Now they got great chocolate coming out of Brooklyn. Yep. Is there such a thing yet as great chocolate being done here in Washington? Well, there's actually, I was uh, just there today, I can say. Uh, there's a, And you didn't bring me anything. I did, I did not. I'm sorry. Man, I didn't realize that was okay. on the table. Yeah. Uh, there is a, a local producer, Harper McCall, has a factory in Brookland. I mean, uh, further up in uh, Northeast. They just opened a shop very much in the wharf because they, they were looking at expansion possibilities and they are, you know, single origin. Their, their chocolate comes from, you know, uh, select par- select rainforests, and they, they do their best to source it with people that they respect and that give back to the community. Uh, and they make everything from, you know, Pop Rock studded bars to, you know, <laughs> bean, you know, single bean bars to, to fun stuff. That, you and, know. of course, everybody has to do salted caramel now. I, I don't think uh, I don't think you'd be you'd have any trouble finding salted caramel. No kidding. Town. Yeah. All right. Now let's shift gears to do what we want to talk about, which is where do you go to hang? Uh, well, that's a loaded question. It obviously depends on what I'm in the mood for. Okay, let's start with breakfast, then we'll go to lunch, then we'll go to dinner. Go. Breakfast, uh, I, unfortunately, I don't get to eat enough of just because uh, I'm usually... You're still recovering from those rum buns. That's right. Well, yeah, you fine, know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would say some of my favorite breakfasts uh, are very simple. I, you know, everyone in D.C. is still crazy about avocado toast and things like that. I appreciate a nice scone. Lots of happy bakeries around the city that do incredible things from croissants to cronuts to... You know, whatever the trendy uh, sweet is. Cronuts are still around, huh? There's, and I think there's been a couple iterations since the cronut that. Because, uh, you know, the Krispy Kreme phase is sort of like beyond us now, right? Well, no, donuts, I would say, are even bigger now. Oh, yeah, than, but, I, but I was talking about Krispy Kreme. Yeah, right. well, Krispy Kreme in and out. Yeah, but, uh, but we have Krispy Kreme all I'm over sure the place. You do. People still run to that bright red sign that says <laughs> donuts now, you know, hot, hot now. Uh, you know, you can't turn that off, but. Uh, yeah, we've got uh, bakeries that do local, you know, handmade donuts. Uh, right now, I'm a big, I'm in love because fall, winter, cider donuts. I'm a big fan of those apple, apple, f- you know, just a little bit of cinnamon, the, the tint of apple, fabulous stuff. Lunch and dinner, I'm, um, the places I would go right now, not secrets because uh, I've written about them, but there's two places, one in Navy Yard, Salt Line, which is supposed to be New England style seafood you know they've got lobster rolls and things like that but the chef is really having a lot of fun with it he's having you know he's making instead of Nashville hot chicken he's making Nashville hot crabs he's wow. making uh, you know he's got oyster shooters with house made um, Bloody Mary mix and things like that and then just really good uh, a crazy burger called a smash burger that you forget you're at a seafood house because it's just like no this is meat-tacular I love it great job meat-tacular <laughs> be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant Now the most important person in the hotel, don't tell that to Hans Berlan, but that's okay. He's the executive chef, Nicolas Le Gray. How did I pronounce it? Did I do okay? Yeah, very good. Very good. The executive chef right here at the Hay Adams. You know, earlier in the show, we were talking about all the great food options and restaurant options in Washington. And if, if truth be told, and I think you might agree with this, you know, 20 years ago, Washington was not a food town. And hotels, food was sort of like an afterthought. 
It was where you ate if you couldn't get anywhere else, and it was steak and potatoes. That's all gone now. Yes, yeah, it's all gone. I mean, not all gone, of course. I mean, when you look, you can at still get steak, yes, but yeah, I'm saying, yeah, yeah mostly, mostly, yes. So, what are you bringing to the party here? That's changing that. That's that's adding things to the menu that you wouldn't expect to find at just a typical hotel restaurant. That people are going, wow, I can't wait to go back. Well, I mean, our menu. I mean. Our menu is very basic because, you know, it's, uh, again, it's a hotel. It's an hotel. It's a Hay Adams Hotel. People have been coming here for so many, so many years. Yeah. And as soon as you change something, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of hard because they are used to come here. And, and, and we are not work, we, they, they, it's not the, the young generation, I will say, you know. They, they're a little bit older, you know. Those, they like what they like. It's, it's, it's hard for me to, to make them change. It's, 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 it's hard. Yeah, it's they, very hard. They want what they want. Oh, yes. They, they, they come, you know, you were talking about the steaks. Well, some of them, they come, if there is no steak, then They're not going it's on. a revolution. So there's, you know? Okay, so there's certain things you have to have on the menu. Oh, yes, yes, okay. of course, yes. steak. Oh, the steak, the salmon, yeah, I mean, a piece of any, any fish, like the scallops. Or oh, we got the cup salad on the menu. It's been here for, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. So when you got here about four years ago, the answer was, whatever you do, chef, don't mess with the cup salad. No, actually, they asked me to remove it, and we did. And it didn't and work. And then a week later, we have to prepare. <laughs> because it That'll was, teach you. It was, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Right? Yes, yes. Now, you're a Burgundy guy. Uh, Normandy, Normandy. Normandy. You're a Normandy guy. Yeah. Now, if I know about Normandy, I know two things, butter and more butter. And cream. As I said, more <laughs> butter. So uh, are we using a lot of that? In the, in the, no, no, I try to, you know, because, again, I mean, I try to watch as well as uh, what I'm eating, you know. I mean, butter, okay, butter is very good. Cream is very good. I love them, you know, I love it. But, but you know, I, I believe now, you know, people try to eat a little more healthy than before. So I try to, to incorporate, like, you know, olive oil. I mean, just n natural produce, uh, lemon, uh, you know, like a medi me Mediterranean uh, cuisine, you know, let's say, you know. Now, we talked about the cop salad. You tried to take it off. It came back. What was something you tried to put on, and it left very quickly? Uh, no, except that. I mean, we, I mean, we change our menu very seasonally. Because I so heard rumors about a venison pie. Yes, it was a venison pie last year. I tried to put it. Yeah. I put it, actually, but, but people were not buying it, you know. So it said goodbye. Yeah, we said goodbye. See, you there know, you but go. That, but that, yeah. You 86 the venison. <laughs> I, yes, I did. Yes, you did. Yeah. What would be now the signature dish in the restaurant? Well, we we got few. I mean, we got so many dishes on the menu. But I will say probably the duck. You know, people. I mean, I was not, at first I was kind of surprised. You know, we put the duck on the menu, the duck breast, and we are selling a lot of them. You know, a lot. But what's different about it? No, it's a, it's a, it's a nice duck, a ni ni nice <laughs> it's breast, a nice, well-behaved uh, duck yeah. with some spices and 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 some little vegetable, and, and it's just people liked it, you know, they, they just liked it. And of course, the piece, the meat, you know, there is a steak on the menu still, you know, and we we we, we you know, you, you cannot you cannot go without it. Right. So if you're looking for a cob salad or a steak. Anywhere else in town, don't worry, it's still on the menu here. And the chicken salad. We have the famous chicken salad as well. Been what, makes, what makes it famous? Because I think we are doing a good job on it. I mean, it's but just... But what's in the, other than chicken, what's in that salad? Uh, some little yogurt, lemon, some cucumber, uh, some onion, celery, just light, you know, last, la light seasoning. Uh, it's healthy. Uh, you know, people like it, especially for lunch, you know, it's... it's and what kind of dressing? Uh, just a regular uh, light balsamic dressing, you know, that's always lemon, you know, that's, that's all. How are the French fries? We got a good French fry as well. 
I had to ask. I had no, to I ask. Oh, my goodness. Now, here's a tough question for you. When you're not here at the hotel, let's talk Washington, D.C. places. Where do you like to eat? Well, uh, I'm going, like, oft, not often, but, you know, uh, Le Diplomate on 14th Street. You know, yeah. it's a French brasserie. I, know it, yeah. I think it's very, uh, I mean, I feel very comfortable there. You know, the, I mean, the ambiance is nice. There is always, it's a little busy sometimes, you know, but it's no, I mean, I like the food. It's pretty much straight French food, but very consistent. It's always the same quality, good quality, nice people, the plus, weight stuff. I and mean, plus you know. you're there. Y yes. And then a few other, you know, like a convivial. It's another French chef. Uh, very nice guys. Simple as well. Nice food. And there is so many, you know, it's, it's, it's so many places to, to eat. To, you know, it's, it's too many, actually. But if you're looking for the duck, the chicken salad, the cob salad, and don't forget the steak... Hey, the old reliable Hey Adams. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker. The Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.